Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Thursday, March 9th, 2023. It's been 3,298 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 379 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Report is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Commands North, South, and East of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Due to the missile attack across Ukraine, today's report will only cover the regional updates. But let's get started with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, regrettably, our assessment that Ukraine's nuclear power plants could be de-energized by future Russian missile attacks on energy infrastructure was accurate, with the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant de-energized due to nationwide missile strikes. Second, we maintain that the Russian Federation armed forces are combat ineffective and are only capable of effective attacks on a small area of the front, such as Bakhmut. Third, we maintain that Russia has committed almost all available ground forces to Ukraine and cannot maintain the current level of personnel and equipment losses. Fourth, We maintain that the public infighting between private military company or PMC Wagner Group's leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, and the Russian Ministry of Defense is intensifying. There is a very small but notable chance that the ongoing provocations could spark Russian-on-Russian violence. Fifth, we maintain that the Russian Ministry of Defense is actively working to eliminate the influence of PMC Wagner Group and Yevgeny Prigozhin, both on and off the battlefield. Sixth, our assessment that Russia can no longer tap its strategic reserve of caliber cruise missiles and can only launch its monthly production of 25 to 30 missiles was accurate, with 20 caliber missiles used in today's missile attack, the first in almost three weeks. Seventh, We maintain the Kremlin is actively attempting to topple the legitimate government of Moldova. And finally, we assess that the Kremlin is actively interfering with the Georgian government's attempt to join the European Union. Let's get some regional updates, starting with Kharkiv. In the Dvorichna operational area, The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, reported that Kyanikivka was shelled, while the Russian Ministry of Defense, or MOD, reported positional fighting among DRG units. The GSAFU also reported that Vilshana was shelled, 
reinforcing that Ukrainian forces continue to make incremental gains around the Oskil River bridgehead at Dvorichna. The Kharkiv region was hit with 13 Russian S-300 anti-aircraft missiles used for a ground-to-ground attack, including 11 that struck the city of Kharkiv. Heat, hot water, and electricity were knocked out citywide just one day after Kharkiv turned streetlights back on. In the village of Pisochin, an S-300 landed in the yard of a private home, injuring two pensioners, one hospitalized, while a second missile landed in an unpopulated swampy area. In Slobozhansk, a vegetable processing plant and commercial greenhouse were struck. Moving on to the Donbass region in Luhansk. Fighting continues to be light and limited to positional battles. There continues to be very little activity in the Svatova operational area. The GSAFU reported that Russian forces shelled Novoselivsky, while the Russian MOD reported positional fighting among reconnaissance units. Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor Serhii Khaidai reported that Russian forces attempted to advance on Stelmachivka and were unsuccessful. In the Kremina operational area, positional fighting between squad and platoon-sized units continued in the forests and tree lines near the settlements of Ploshanka, Makivka, and Nevsky. The Russian MOD reported that Ukrainian positions in Chervonopopivka were shelled. Positional fighting continued in the forested areas south and west of Kremina. There was conflicting information from Russian sources about Dibrova, with the Russian MOD reporting that Ukrainian forces in and near the village were shelled. In contrast, mercenary mill blogger Wargonzo reported that Russian troops launched a successful offensive in the direction of Torske. Yesterday was the 305th day of fighting for control of Bilohorivka, the one in Luhansk, with Russian forces attacking throughout the day after pausing operations for part of the day on March 7th. Someone with Borgonzo might be a podcast listener, declaring the Russian offensive was the, quote, traditional attack. If so, Brivit Borgonzo. Our assessment is unchanged from yesterday. You can find it around minute six or seven in yesterday's episode, and we continue to observe the activity on this axis. In northeast Donetsk, in the Siversk operational area, elements of the 2nd Army Corps continued their attacks south and east of Spirna without success. Yesterday, we reported that we were unsure if Russian forces launched an attack from Milohorivka, the one in Donetsk. Well, it was likely an accurate report, with Russian troops once again attempting to advance along the railroad line toward Vyimka, also without success. PMC Wagner also attempted to advance on Vesele from Yakovlivka, suffered losses, and returned to their defensive positions. PMC Wagner also tried to advance on Fedorivka and was, you guessed it, unsuccessful. In the Solidar operational area, PMC Wagner continued its attacks on Zaliznyanske with fighting reportedly intense. In the Bakhmut operational area, Ukrainian forces pushed Russian forces back to the north and southwest, while PMC Wagner made some gains to the city's northwest. 
Ukraine also stabilized the T-506 highway ground line of communication, called a G-lock, that's a supply line, reopening the critical and paved G-lock. Assessment here? The situation remains very fluid and could change quickly. Northwest of the city, PMC Wagner continued attempts to advance on Orikhovo Vasilivka. Several Russian mill bloggers claimed that Wagner mercenaries had reached the village, but at the time of recording, Yevgeny Prigozhin had made no claims of operational success in this or any other direction. PMC Wagner and Russian forces continued to launch repeated attacks on Bubovo Vasilivka after being pushed back from Bogdanivka. Mercenaries with Wagner had reached the western part of Dubovo Vasilivka. Russian attempts to advance out of Birchivka between the Birchivske Reservoir and Yehidne were repulsed. On the T 506 Highway G lock, Ukrainian combat engineers built a temporary bridge in Chromova, replacing the one destroyed when Russian artillery set off placed charges over the weekend. The bypass route to the west of the crossing is still intact. Within Bakhmut, fighting continued to the south, while the Bakhmutovka River separated the combatants in the east. Our favorite FSB colonel, convicted war criminal, Kremlin pariah and failed Mobik, Igor Strelkov-Girkin, wrote he believes that Russian forces will ultimately capture Bakhmut, but it won't matter. He roasted Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu and Prigozhin, writing, quote, Prigozhin and Shoigu happily informed the population of the Russian Federation that they managed to take half of Bakhmut. Without denying in the least the courage and heroism of the Wagner fighters and commanders, as well as the interacting units of the RF armed forces, I will note that the results of more than two months of brutal meat grinder, in the form of taking half of the small city, testify to anything but the military talents of both of these characters. Unfortunately, I express confidence that after the final capture of the city, the offensive will come to nothing in front of the next fortified areas of the enemy, he means Ukraine, erected during the time Bakhmut and Solidar were storming. End quote. Mercenary mill blogger Rybar wrote some quality fan fiction in their daily report, the former Kremlin public relations staffers claimed on March 7th that Ukraine could use the T-504 highway G-lock again. Today, they claimed that Ukrainian reinforcements were building in Ivanivsky, while simultaneously claiming that active fighting was going on at the MiG-17 Memorial and along Independence Avenue. The T-504 G-lock passes next to the MiG-17, making these three claims, when considered together, impossible. We reviewed intelligence that reinforced that Ukrainian forces have pushed Russian troops back from Ivanivsky, the two kilometers claimed on March 7th. We readjusted our map to reflect our higher confidence in those claims. South of Bakhmut, in the Kostyantanivka operational direction, the GSAFU again reported repelling a Russian attack from Klishivka, further reinforcing the Ukrainian advance. Some assessment. While Ukrainian forces had a good day yesterday and appear to have re-established two of the three G-locks that support defensive efforts, the situation remains fluid. Further, Ukraine has no firm grip on either highway, which could easily fall back under Russian fire control. 
our team was in fierce debate on Thursday and Friday last week based on very reliable reports we received that Ukrainian forces were preparing to withdraw from Bakhmut. Based on prior analysis, team expertise, and the tactics of both combatants, we ultimately decided to ignore the intelligence and reported that Ukraine was preparing for a limited withdrawal to the west bank of the Bakhmutovka River, but would maintain the city's defense. Collectively, we are surprised that Ukraine has been able to improve its situation as much as it has in the last 72 hours and its ability to resupply the garrison. We maintain that Russian forces will continue to do everything short of using chemical, biological, radiological, or nuclear, that's seaburn, weapons to capture Bakhmut. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. In southwest Donetsk, in the Toritsk, New York operational area, the 1st Army Corps attempted to advance on Oleksandropil without success. Fighting with reduced intensity continued east of the Krasnohorivka Plateau, including Russian attempts to advance from Kamyanka. Morgonzo reported that Russian troops had not crossed the H-20 highway, which calls into question if Vesele, the third Vesele in Donetsk north of Avdiivka, was captured on March 7th. Russian troops may have created a small salient at the plateau base, and Rybar claimed that the settlement was under Russian control on March 8th. South of Avdiivka, the situation is unchanged. Russian troops continued trying to push west out of Vodyana along the northern edge of Pervomaiske and north toward Sieverne while defending their existing positions. Rybar claimed that Russian troops had advanced to the, quote, landing and were fighting for control of the heights north of Vodyana. But we've had that area under Russian control for weeks. Russian mill bloggers have claimed territorial gains in areas they already control when progress has bogged down. Wargonzo reported that the 1st Army Corps made a head-on attack on Ukrainian defenses in Avdiivka from Spartak with no success. Russian forces continued to attack the Ukrainian firebase at Nevelske without changing the situation. In the Marinka operational area, fighting in the center of the wasteland where Marinka once was continued. In the Vukhledar operational area, after repeated and failed attempts to recapture the pig farm on the eastern edge of Pobida, the 1st Army Corps renewed attacks east of Novomikhailivka and maintained the over nine-year tradition of suffering losses and returning to their previous defensive positions. Insurgents in Mariupol reported that the line to cross into Russia at the Novoazovsk border crossing extended for more than 10 kilometers, with commercial builders and trucks full of stolen Ukrainian grain withdrawing from the Russian-occupied city. Moving on to Zaporizhia. The Zaporizhia nuclear power plant was completely de-energized due to widespread Russian missile attacks on Ukrainian infrastructure. The 750-kilovolt line was disconnected in the early hours of March 9th local time. 
It's the first time the station has been completely de-energized since November 23, 2022. Operators were bringing reactors 5 and 6 to cold shutdown and switched to emergency power supported by eight diesel-fueled generators with enough reserves to support cooling and operational systems for 15 days. Radiation levels are normal. International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, Secretary General Rafael Grossi reported that the 330-kilovolt line that Russian forces damaged west of the Dnipro on Sunday was still de-energized at the time of the missile strikes. Grossi, expressing frustration, told the IAEA Board of Governors, who are currently meeting in Vienna, Austria, quote, Yet again, Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is running on emergency diesel generators, the last line of defense. This is the sixth time, let me say it again, the sixth time that ZNPP has lost all off-site power and has had to operate in this emergency mode. Let me remind you, this is the largest nuclear power station in Europe. What are we doing? How can we sit here in this room this morning and allow this to happen? This cannot go on. I am astonished by the complacency. What are we doing to prevent this from happening? We are the IAEA. We are meant to care about nuclear safety. Each time we are rolling a dice, and if we allow this to continue time after time, then one day our luck will run out. I call on everyone in this room today and elsewhere. We must commit to protect the safety and security of the plant. And we need to commit now. End quote. Emphasis Grossi. Just hours before the destabilizing missile strikes, Rosatom officials provided a press tour to pro-Russian journalists and propagandists at ZNPP, and did a ceremony changing the sign showing ownership from Energoatom to the Russian state-run enterprise. Okay, sidebar. We couldn't make this up in our wildest dreams. I'm just imagining the tour. See how good we are at running nuclear power plants? Now if you step over here and look to your left, you can watch our military create a crisis. A fire broke out along the riverbank of the Dnipro east of Enerjodar, and expanded to four acres before being controlled. Russian occupiers blame the fire on Ukraine, saying, without any evidence, they dropped incendiary bombs from a drone. Four Russian cruise missiles hit critical infrastructure in Zaporizhia, causing extensive damage. There were no injuries. In Russian-occupied Vasilivka, drone-directed artillery destroyed an electronic warfare, radar, and communication station. This is the second attack on Russian electronic warfare capabilities in the area in less than 48 hours. In the Black Sea, Crimea, Mykolaiv, and Odessa region, Operational Command South, or OCS, reported nine Black Sea Fleet vessels on patrol with no missile carriers after yesterday's attack. Four vessels, two frigates, and two Kilo-class submarines launched 20-caliber cruise missiles at Ukraine. Odessa was hit with two Russian cruise missiles, which damaged multiple power lines and transmission towers. Parts of the region were without power as Ukrainian energy company DTEK worked on making repairs. In western and central Ukraine, in Kherson, Russian and Ukrainian forces traded artillery strikes across the Dnipro. 
Russian forces carried out 86 fire missions, firing 434 artillery shells, mortars, Grad and Smirch rockets, indirect tank fire, and drone-delivered IEDs. The city of Kherson was shelled seven times, targeting the residential areas. One civilian was killed and three more wounded during the attacks. This morning, a Russian artillery strike on a Kherson bus stop killed three and wounded two. One of the deceased was in a nearby store and was struck by flying shrapnel, killing them instantly. Russian-occupied Holopristan was shelled, and DRG units increased fighting for control of Big Potemkin Island, south of Kherson. Dnipropetrovsk Oblast administrative and military governor Serhiy Lusak reported that Russian artillery strikes, Grad rocket attacks, cruise missile and Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 kamikaze drone strikes killed one person and wounded two. Missiles struck Dnipro, Kriviri, and Pavlorad rayons, damaging multiple energy infrastructure facilities and causing fires in industrial areas. Ivano-Frankivsk Oblast administrative and military governor Svetlana Onischuk reported that a Russian cruise missile hit an energy infrastructure facility but did not provide any other information in order to maintain operational security. In the Kirovorad Oblast, An Iranian source, Shahed-136 kamikaze drone, struck an infrastructure facility in the Kropvinitsky rayon. At the time of recording, no additional information was available. A cruise missile also hit civilian infrastructure in the Venetia oblast. In the Lviv oblast, five people were killed in Velika Vilshanitsya when debris from a Russian cruise missile struck a residential area, obliterating houses. The bodies of two men and three women have been recovered, and one person is reported as missing. Critical energy infrastructure in the Zhitomir Oblast was hit by a cruise missile, knocking out power to 150,000 people. At the time of recording, the facility was still on fire. In north and northeast Ukraine, according to Mayor Vitaly Klitschko, three people were wounded by missile strikes in the Vidubichi Holosievsky and Sviatoshinsky districts in Kyiv. With up to six Kinzhal hypersonic air-to-ground missiles, causing a massive fire at the facility. In the Sumy Oblast, Shostka was hit by three missiles, destroying a business and damaging residential buildings. At the time of recording, no casualties were reported. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. Ukrainian officials reported 81 missiles, including S-300 anti-aircraft missiles used for ground attack, and eight Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 kamikaze drones were used in yesterday's attack, which appeared to have exclusively targeted civilians and civilian infrastructure. The general staff reported that Russian forces used almost every available missile in its inventory, if you are interested in that information, or if you just like lists. It is in our full situation report on Patreon. Ukrainian air defenses had 48 valid targets, shooting down 34. Additionally, eight guided cruise missiles were disabled using electronic warfare, and air defenses brought down four Shahed-136 drones. Ukrainian air defenses had a 72% success rate against viable targets, which is a 
subpar performance compared to previous attacks. There were social media reports that Russian cruise missiles violated Moldovan airspace, which the Moldovan government denied. The IAEA reported that the South Ukraine nuclear power plant lost connection to power lines but could maintain off-site power. The Khmelnytsky and Rivne nuclear power plants were not directly impacted but had to make adjustments to prevent overloading the power grid. The self-declared security minister of the unrecognized Republic of Transnistria claimed that an assassination attempt on Kremlin puppet Vadim Krasnoselsky and the other so-called leaders of Transnistria was foiled. Local officials claim the Security Service of Ukraine, or SBU, was behind a plot to plant an 8-kilogram IED with nuts and bolts as shrapnel in a Land Rover SUV. It is alleged that Vyacheslav Kiznichin, a Transnistrian national, was behind the plot under the direction of the SBU. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.